look with me. I'm going to read 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll jump into our message. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. He walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all his, the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, became king in his place. If you're taking notes, the title of our message today is this, King Abijah, or Abijam, depending on which passage we're looking at. A call to trust the faithful God. A call to trust the faithful God. Two weeks ago, my wife and I were able to go to Los Angeles to participate and to uh, be partakers in the ACBC Counseling uh, Conference. ACBC stands for Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and we got to hear amazing teaching and enjoy a rich time of fellowship around the Word of God. But we also got to do some sightseeing. We got to go to Sequoia National Park, and here we have this wonderful picture of my wife. I did ask her if it was okay for me to show her picture up here, and she said it was. So here we have this up-close and personal picture of my wife, just beautiful, standing there, wonderful, gorgeous, amazing wife. And behind, we, we, see, we see a picture of some trees, and, and we know that there's something large back there, but we can't really tell what's going on. Why? Because this snapshot, this portrait, this focus, uh, this picture is focusing on my wife. The rest is just mere background. But if I give you another snapshot, if I show you another picture, all of a sudden, whoa, right? Now we have a panorama view. This is where the, zo uh, the lens has been zoomed out. Now the focus is on the whole picture. The focus is on the trees. Look how big and massive those trees are, which if you've, if you've ever been to Sequoia National Park, you would know those are some gigantic trees. And now the focus is less off on my wife and more so on the amazing surrounding environment. She looks like a mouse walking among giants. Now, the purpose of that is not to make you envious of our vacation. Some of y'all might be. Some of y'all might be like, eh, it's okay. It's just trees, no big deal. But as we turn to our passage today, what we're going to see are two vastly different snapshots of the same king. One that's going to be up close and personal in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, we're going to look at Abijah at the finest moment of his life. One defining event that the chronicler decided to record from us, uh, for us. But in 1 Kings chapter 15, we have another picture, a totally different snapshot. One that's 
uh, that has the lens zoomed out, a panorama, if you would, providing the overview of his entire life. And so what we see from these snapshots is that from his name to his family line to his walk with the Lord, the two accounts paint the king in two separate lights, which might leave some asking, well, which one's the right one? Well, we would say, well, God's word is inspired and errant, authoritative, sufficient, so we know that they're both right. They're both providing us a unique but complementary perspective on Judah's second king. But despite these differing snapshots, there's only one truth being conveyed. In both passages, we see this, that both you and I are called to wholehearted trust in the faithful God. From Abijah's faithlessness to Abijah's faithfulness, we see there is a faithful God on his throne, as we've already talked about, sovereign, supreme, who is keeping all of his covenant promises, and it is that God that we are called to trust in today. Now, we've already talked a lot this morning about God's faithfulness to Israel, but I just want to give us a, another perspective, a excuse me, another swath, if you would, of verses that remind us of God's of our God's faithfulness. Psalm 36.5 teaches us about God's faithfulness. It says there, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations to those who love Him and keep his commandments. Isaiah chapter 11 verse uh, verse 5 talks about the Messiah, King Jesus, that he wears faithfulness as if it was a belt around his waist. Revelation 19 11, when Christ comes, he shall be called the faithful and the true. At God's very essence, at his very core, who he is by nature, God is a faithful covenant keeping God. These are his ways. How are you and I called to respond to the faithful God who never breaks his promises, who never goes back on his word, who moves the world in order to bring about the eternal counsels of his will? Answer is trust. Unwavering, unyielding, wholehearted trust in the faithful God. That's the message for us today. And we're going to begin with the first snapshot in 1 Kings chapter 15. As I said, this is the panorama view. This is the, the lens zoomed out when taken from a distance. The author presents us here in 1 Kings 15, 1 through 8, the overall picture of this king's life. And what is his conclusion that's uh, not very good in, refor- in regards to Abijam, that this king was faithless. But the theological truth that he's trying to present to us is that despite this man's faithlessness, God remained faithful. Therefore, you and I are encouraged to trust this covenant-keeping God. So here we begin our first snapshot, a faithless king, but a faithful God. 
a faithless king, but a faithful God. This snapshot gives us two main characters, two main characters in these first eight verses. The first is a faithless king, verses one through three, a faithless king, and his, faith, uh, his unfaithfulness really begins with his disturbing background. Look at verse one with me. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. Here's his disturbing background. Uh, look with me at his name in verse 1. His name in verse 1, Abijam. Uh, the name Abijam literally means, my father is Yom. Now, you probably don't know who Yom is. I didn't until I uh, was researching this. But Yom was a pagan deity, one who supposedly ruled over the sea in ancient idolatrous um, religion. And this is important to note because in 2 Chronicles, his name is not Abijam, but Abijah, which means my father is Yahweh. And so the purpose of what the author in Kings is trying to show us is that his change in name represents his change in loyalty. Abijam had turned from the worship of the true God to the worship of pagan deities. You might ask this question, well, why? why? What was the influence that might have caused such a perverse turnaround? Well, we go from his name to his lineage. Look at, uh, with me at verse 2. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. Eric noted for us last time that Maacah is the daughter, or we could say better, the granddaughter of Absalom, which is a, of Abishalom, which is another rendering of Absalom. Now, when we hear the name of Absalom, immediately we have caution flags that are going up. We know that this was the son of David who tried to uh, destroy the house and the line of David, who tried to rebel and overthrow the, the kingdom. So we see here immediately that there is somebody evil, somebody dangerous on the prowl that's threatening here. And what will go on next time, you'll see that Maacah enjoyed what the Bible describes as the queen mother. She was the queen mother. Now, the queen mother had one of the most influential roles in the royal court. She would provide counsel in the realm of foreign politics. Um, she would advise the king on important decisions, and she served as the teacher of the royal children. And if you look at 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 13, what we notice is, is that Maacah was an idol worshiper. She was not a worshiper of the one true God. So here is uh, Abijam's background, his lineage. He has an idol-worshiping mother on one side, and who is the granddaughter of the treacherous Absalom, who is now sitting in a position of unbridled influence in the court. And what we see is, that, uh, ironically almost, is that once again Absalom, now through his granddaughter comes close to destroying the Davidic kingdom, this time not through physical rebellion, but spiritual idolatry. But if it were not for God's faithfulness, his gracious promise to David, all might have been lost. But we have a faithful God. So this is Abijam's background. His name reveals his idolatrous actions. His lineage reveals the evil-shaping influence that had led him down this treacherous road to faithlessness. That brings us then to prepare for his divided heart. His divided heart. Look with me at verse 
3, he walked in all the sins of his father which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. Earlier this year, my family and I, we went to Eagle Mountain Lake, which is not too far away from our home. And we like to go hiking out there sometimes. And my son, he's at that age. He was four then, now he's five. He's at the age where he, he's got to do everything that dad does, right? Now we're out there hiking and, and I jump on the, the tree root and then well, he's got to jump on the tree. I, I try to hurdle that rock, well, then he's got to try to hurdle that rock. Or I try to scale that steep cliff or steep hill, and uh, now he's got to try to follow my actions. And so we see that phrase, as many of you know, like father, like son, right? Well, many times this is a harmless reality. But for the case of Abijam, it was a deadly nightmare. Look what the text says. It says that he walked in not just one, not just some, but all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. Rehoboam had led his son down a deadly trail of sin that Abijam followed. Right there, that word walk means to follow in the course of, to follow in the pattern of. Where did his father lead him? His father didn't lead him into godliness. His father didn't lead him into holiness or to personal piety or some kind of noble character trait, but his father led him into sin. So here we have his mother's sinful influence on one side and his father's immoral example on the other, which, you know, just in passing for us, parents, grandparents, maybe some great-grandparents here in the room, your parenting matters, right? Your parenting matters. It's not the sole criteria that determine our child's heart. Only God has the power to do that through his spirit, by his word, but your shaping influence, your personal example, your teaching, your instruction, your admonition serve as the form boards by which the concrete of your child's heart will settle. And so here we are, just reminded again, exhorted again, that we need to be faithful to the scripture to model lives of personal holiness before our children. So here is Abijam. He's walking in all the sins of his father. We learned last time that they included idolatry, that included sexual immorality, that included child sacrifice and the like. Abijam walked in every single one of, uh, one of them. And then it goes on in verse 3 that his heart was not wholly devoted. It was not entirely committed to the Lord his God like the heart of his father, David. Heart, as you know, is the Old Testament term for all of one's being. His mind, his affections, his desires, his emotions, his actions, his word, his thinking, all of it, the author says, was not wholly devoted to God. His heart was divided. As we'll see, there were, there were times in which Abijam walked with the Lord and trusted in the Lord, but... Overall, the total scope, the characteristic pattern of his life was one of division, one of a heart that would um, show love for God on one side, but turn and another. He drifted off the path because of his competing devotions. Now, this is unlike, the text says, it's unlike his father, David. You see, David was a man after God's own heart. David here and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament is pictured. He is the paradigm of what it looks like to have wholehearted devotion, of wholehearted trust 
to the Lord his God. Why was that? Was it because David was sinless? No. Was it because David was perfect? Absolutely not. It was because that no matter what happened in David's life, whether it be to him or by him, he turned and he trusted in God. You see, to be wholly devoted to the Lord your God doesn't mean that you have a sinless heart. What it does mean is that you have a repentant heart. You have a heart that you will turn, confess your sin, call upon the Lord, and trust in him. While David did not walk perfectly in the eyes of the Lord, he was faithful to confess his sins, turn from it, and run back to the God who promised to blot out his transgressions, to wash away his iniquity, to cleanse sinners from their sin, sins because of the basis of his grace, his mercy, and his love. Faith builders, God is still searching for such men and women today. Those who will have an undivided heart, those who will be wholehearted in their trust and in their affection to the Lord. Listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro. What's he looking for? When we see he is moving to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Hearts that are not tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of lustful desire. Hearts that are not divided in their affection, feigning love for God on one hand, but indulging in evil on the other, but rather hearts that are willing to trust in the Lord, and when they stumble into sin, they will confess, they will forsake, and they will run back to God. This is the kind of heart that God is looking for in us today. And so I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 86:11, knowing the the battle, the temptation, the waging war within his heart, he prays this out to God. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in, you tr- in your truth. Unite, unite my heart to fear your name. Let me not have a divided heart, O God, but unite my heart. Give me wholehearted obedience and allegiance and loyalty to you, O God. So this was the kind of heart that God was looking for in Abijam. However, the king failed miserably. At this point in the narrative, we come to a a serious question. Uh, we, We get this weight, this sense, this feeling upon us as we're reading. And the question is, how does this affect all of God's promises to David? Right, First Solomon, then Rehoboam, and now Abijam. They've all unsuccessfully imitated their father David to walk in the ways of the Lord. Jeroboam, as we have learned, has also flunked out with a track record so bad that God has promised to him that he will completely wipe out Jeroboam's house. He will blot it out forever. And so the question that begins to hang in the air is this, will this happen to David's house too? As we see sin after sin, as we see wicked king after wicked king, Will David's house also be destroyed because of his son's faithfulness, uh, faithlessness? Well, we see in verse 4 that the author of Kings steps in to reassure us. He says, never fear. Even though man is faithless, God remains 
faithful. So that brings us to our second character, and that is a faithful God. A faithful God. Look at verse 4. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. But, the author starts there in verse 4, but, this is a key word as uh, we often see the but, God, the, uh, that phrase that, also, that often uh, includes or adds or brings in an important theological truth. He says, but God, or but for David's sake, the Lord is God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. Real quick, turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I just want you to read this. I know you're familiar with it, but I just want to recall our attention to God's covenant to David. This is what the author is reminding us, alluding us back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 15 through 16. We see in the Davidic covenant that God had granted to David both present time and future time promises. That presently, David would receive a great name. Israel would be established as an appointed place and that David would have rest from his enemies. But we also see future promises to David, that David would have a descendant, a royal seed, who would sit on David's throne and have his kingdom established forever. We see that was partially fulfilled in Solomon and his sons, but as we know, as the New Testament describes, ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is David's son. So, but the point I want us to grasp is verse 15. Uh, here, it says in verse 14 that, that David will have sons after him who will uh, disobey, who will walk in iniquity. But what God promises is he promises to David that though they commit iniquity, God will not take away his love from them forever. Rather, he will correct them with the rod of men. He will correct them with the strokes of the sons of men. Verse 15, but my steadfast love, my loving kindness, it shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So what God is saying and promising here in the Davidic covenant is the same promise, the same theological bedrock, the cornerstone, foundational truth that the author in Kings reminds us of back in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 4. This is important. He is recalling to us, to our mind, to the reader's mind. So the question then, how will God respond? How will he respond to these promises to David, uh, to David and to his house, the answer is God will be faithful. God will remain faithful to his word. He will not shift. He will not turn back, but rather he will give him, verse 4, a lamp, a lamp, a a flame, a, a torch for David. He will keep David's house alit. He will keep a son on his throne in Jerusalem through his descendants and, get this, in spite, in spite of their sin. Because God is gracious. While at the same time, he will extinguish the flame of Jeroboam's house because of their sin. So this is the theological bedrock 
that the author of Kings is laying here and reminding us to, that God's faithfulness to his word, even when his people are not. Whether that be Solomon or Rehoboam, Abijam, or as we see in verse 5, even David himself. Look what the text says. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Right? David was the man. David was perfect. Right? David walked blamelessly. Well, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Point being that even David needed God to be gracious to his promises. Even David needed God to remain faithful to his word. So, what are the points? What's the point? What is the author trying to get our minds to understand in these few uh, first few verses? It's it's this: that God is to be trusted. God is to be trusted. Neither sin nor infidelity, nor bad kings, nor wicked rulers, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to move God from his faithful commitment to his word. God is faithful to a thousand generations. His faithfulness reaches to the heavens. He, he puts it on like a belt. Therefore, faith builders, you and I can trust in him. Give to him your wholehearted, undivided allegiance. Well, having given us a brief sketch of Abijam's rule, reign, God's promises, who he is, he sums up in these last three verses uh, the rest of Abijam's life. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Verse 7, now the rest of the acts of Abijam, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? It's as if the, the, the rest of Abijam's life pales in compar- comparison to what he makes here at the end of verse 7. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. He focuses here on this war. So we'll turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 13 now. Second Chronicles chapter 13, because now the author of Chronicles is going to focus in on this war. And specifically, as I noted, he's going to give us a snapshot of this king's life. And it's going to differ dramatically from what we find in 1 Kings chapter 15. His name is different, his lineage is different, and his character, his walk with the Lord differs as well. Of course, we ask the question, what's going on here, Wes? What, why are all these differences? Well, first, it's imperative to note, as I said already, these are not two contradictory accounts, but rather two different perspectives, two different angles. And the question then is why? Well, the second, we have to keep in mind that Kings, uh, uh, the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are written with two different perspectives, two different purposes, I should say. Right? Kings was written to recall why the nation was in exile. Chronicles to show how the nation is to respond now that they're out of exile. So now that they have different purposes, so forth, they have different perspectives in their writing. First and Second Kings often notes the bad because it explains why they got where they were. First and Second Chronicles the good because it wants us and encourages the returned exiles to trust and honor God. So with that, let's turn to our second snapshot here: a trusting king. And a trustworthy God, a trusting king and a 
trustworthy God. The Chronicle captures for his audience here a single moment, a single uh, snapshot of Abijah's life, one in which the king displayed faith that was worthy of imitation. One commentator said it like this, quote, this is Abijah's golden moment, his finest hour. And the conclusion, the point is this, that just like Abijah, we too ought to trust in the trustworthy God. So in this chapter, Abijah's trust is highlighted in three ways. First, we have the need for his trust. The need for his trust. Look at verse 2. At the end of verse 2, immediately the author transplants us into the midst of a national crisis. It says, verse 2, now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And we've talked about war quite a bit today. War is a grisly thing. It is a terrible, awful thing as we see the scenes that are taking place in the Middle East. But now imagine yourself, picture yourself in Abijah's situation. And we're not talking about hundreds or thousands. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of soldiers gathered about you. Not only that, verse 3 says, Abijah began the battle with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 chosen men, while Jeroboam drew up in battle formation against them with 800,000 chosen men who are valiant warriors. I mean, this guy is vastly outnumbered. He is in a jam. So we might think, if we were in Abijah's shoes, to think, I I don't know if I got much chance here. I don't know if there's any hope. Now, I, I used to coach football, and there was times when we, we stepped out on the field and we said, we're going to need a lot of help today because that other team's got some really good football players. I mean, this might have been Abijah's thought process. We are totally outnumbered here. We don't have any hope. Is that how Abijah, is that how he acts? Is that how he responds? Well, we see here how Abijah responds in one of the most difficult moments of his life. He doesn't fold it in. He doesn't look to the strong arm of the flesh. He doesn't look to human wisdom to pull him out of the frying pan. Rather, he braces himself upon the steadfast rock of the Lord. He looks to the trustworthy God. Despite what the circumstances might look like for him, despite the obstacles standing in front of him, he casts himself, he looks to the promises of God and places his hope in the Lord. And immediately that's instructive for us, is it not? Now, I, you know, brothers and sisters, I know for, for many of you, I don't know if anybody in here comes from a military background, you've never been in a war. I've never been in a war. We will never be in a war like Abijah, but I know that for many of you, in fact, for every single one of you here in this room, we have all faced, are going to face, an Abijah-like circumstance in our life, a difficult moment, a distressing situation in which we are going to find ourselves facing overwhelming odds. How are you going to respond in the midst of that devastating trial? In fact, some of you may even be going through such a circumstance right now. Uh, A death of a loved one, or a result from the doctor, or that crippling resignation letter from that employer, 
Right, Jesus said in Matthew 7, it's not if these storms will come, but when they come. How will you respond in those moments? Where or to whom will you turn? Well, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 tell it the best, right? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's exactly we, how we see Abijah respond in these next few moments. So we see, secondly, that his trust is highlighted through the expressions of his trust. Notice with me the expressions of his trust. First, he gives a confident speech. Look at verse 4. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zemaraim, which is in the hill, hill country of Ephraim, and he said, Listen to me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Right? I, I love this. Uh, th- this guy is bold in the face of these overwhelming odds. What does Abijah do? He's like, hey, hey guys, hey, listen to me. I got something to say to you. I got some news to tell you. Here you come up here thinking, putting your trust in the arm of your flesh, putting trust in horses and chariots and putting your trust in everything else but God. Here, I have something to tell you from a man who is trusting in God. So here is his boldness. He says, listen to me. What was it that gave him such confidence? Well, first we see it's God's everlasting covenant. Verse 5, God's everlasting covenant. He says, do you not know? Jeroboam, Israel, do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Covenant of salt pictures the permanency of, of the covenant promises. So what, what are we seeing here? What is, Jer- uh, what is Abijah saying here? Well, he's saying that his, his trust stemmed from God. And, and what specifically about God? Well, it was God's gracious, unconditional, eternal covenant with David. The cornerstone, the cornerstone of Abijah's faith was the trustworthy God in his word. This is the exact same truth that the author in Kings just made. We have a faithful God who will be faithful to his promises, and it's that truth that we see here Abijah leaning upon, relying upon. And guess what, believers? That's the exact same truth that we put our trust in today. Not looking to a Messiah who will come, but a Messiah who has come and will come again. Where is our trust? Our trust is, is in God who will bring about exactly what he said when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. This is our promise. This is our hope. This is our trust in God and what he has Declare, but he goes on. He's, he also says, Here is my trust. It's because of Jeroboam's rebellious coup that Jeroboam has turned. He is no longer trusting in the Lord. Therefore, I know that God is with us and not with Jeroboam. Look at verse 6. We see that Jeroboam, he rebelled against God's chosen king. Verse 6 Yet Jeroboam, that word yet, it's a key contrast, yet in light of this promise, here is Jeroboam, right? The son of Nebat. No, it's not the son of David, who is 
then he goes on, not the son of David, but the son of Nebat, who is the servant. Notice, not the son of Solomon, but the servant of Solomon. Who is Solomon? Solomon is the son of David, which we just learned was the chosen king, and his sons were the chosen line. So it is here that Jeroboam then is rising up, the text says, he rose up and he rebelled against his master. So instead of humbling himself and submitting, we see that Jeroboam rose up, rebelled against his master. But it's not as if Rehoboam is innocent in this. It says, and worthless men gathered about him. Uh, Debate some on who the hymn refers to here. Most likely it's to Rehoboam. We see that Rehoboam had worthless men that gathered about him, scoundrels who proved too strong for Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against them. So he is attacking here Jeroboam's rebellion against God's chosen king, but he also attacks him because of his rebellion against God's chosen kingdom. Look at verse 8. He says, so now, all right, so you've rebelled against the king, now you're adding sin upon sin. So now you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord? Notice there, now it's not a man. Now it's saying, Jeroboam, you're resisting the kingdom of the Lord. You're resisting God. Why? Because the kingdom of the Lord is mediated, it is manifested through the sons of David. So here you are attacking us, attacking the king, attacking, therefore, the kingdom of God, attacking, therefore, God himself. Jeroboam, you are... (laughs) in rebellion. Well, why? Why is he doing it? He says, being a great multitude and having with you the golden calves, which Jeroboam made for God's for you. Basically, he's saying, Jeroboam, you're trusting in the size of your army. Jeroboam, you're trusting in these false gods to get you what you want. You're not trusting in the one true God. Thirdly, he attacks him because of his rebellion against God's chosen priesthood. Look at verse 9. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the peoples of other lands? Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams, even he may become a priest of what are no God. So, essentially, Abijah blasts Jeroboam, declaring that in every way imaginable, this guy is in rebellion against the Lord. But he doesn't leave it there. Next, he's going to show his, Abijah's, unwavering commitment. So why does he have confidence? He's saying, well, this guy's not trusting in the Lord. This guy is in rebellion against the Lord. But on the other hand, we are submitting, we are trusting, we are obeying the Lord. We see that Abijah is committed to the true God. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, but as for us, in stark contrast to you, Jeroboam, as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. So where is his trust? His trust is in the Lord, and he therefore is with us. We also see that he's committed to the true priesthood. He's committed to the true priesthood. In verse 10, And the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests, and the Levites attend to their work. Verse 11, he is committed to true worship. 
He's committed to true worship. Verse 11, every morning and evening they burn to the Lord burnt offerings and fragrant incense, and the showbread is set on the clean table, and the golden lampstand with its lamps is ready to light every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. In every way, we are trusting in the Lord. We are following after him. We are committed to God. What does that then lead to? Well, it leads, oops, took it out. It leads to Judah's undeniable victory. Judah's undeniable victory in verse 12. He says, now behold, now behold, we have the covenant. We have the promises of God. We are trusting the Lord while you are rebelling against the Lord. Now, behold, God is with us. God is with us. He is at our head. And his priests, that is the ones who mediate between us and God, they are the ones who stand before us mediating with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight. Do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. What a speech, right? What a speech. What confidence, what boldness, what trust. And did it, did it stem in him, in his might? Did, it, did he say, because I got a better army than you, or because I, I have better generals than you, and I can outmaneuver you, or was his trust in any of that? No, his trust was in the Lord. So that brings us then the second expression of his trust. It's a dependent prayer. A dependent prayer. Look with me at verse 13. But Jeroboam had set an ambush to come from the rear. So obviously Jeroboam, as he's shown throughout, he's not willing to listen. He hardens his heart. He's not going to take this man's warning he sets an ambush to come from the rear so that Israel was in front of Judah and the ambush was behind him. So now we really got some trouble. He's outnumbered. Now he's outmaneuvered. I mean, this guy has no hope, right? Verse 14, when Judah turned around, behold, they were attacked both front and rear. Do they just give up here? They're just going to fold it in, lay it down, lay down their arms and say, you know what? All that, all that, that was just talk. We were just trying to, you know, act big, mighty, and tough to hopefully kind of scare you away. <coughs> no, right? That was not just noise, but it was actually faith that now they will act upon. Verse 14, so they cried. They lifted up their voice and they cried to the Lord. They prayed to the God in heaven. In verse 14, and the priests blew the trumpets. Numbers 10, 8 through 9 teaches us that this is another act of sheer dependence, that the trumpets were essentially another cry or petition to God that he might hear from heaven and save his people by his strong and mighty hand. So here we see Abijah leading the nation in trust and dependence to cast themselves upon the mercy of God in their time of crisis. This is Abijah's golden hour, right? This is his finest moment. Unfortunately, for the rest of his life, he does not reflect this. As we saw in 1 Kings 15, he falls away from the Lord. 
He does not continue to trust in the living God. But the author here in Chronicles doesn't want us to focus on that. He wants to focus here on this one shining example from this king who trusted in a trustworthy God. Now the question is, as we get to this verse 15, is how will God respond? How will God respond? Here's Abijah, here's Judah casting their hope upon God. Will God respond in kind? Well, he does. We see, thirdly, the results of his trust. The results of his trust, verse 15. We see, then the men of Judah raised a war cry. And when the men of Judah raised the war cry, then it was that, notice the emphasis here, God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. Verse 16, when the sons of Israel fled before Judah, again, note the emphasis, God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people defeated them with a great slaughter so that 500,000 chosen men, excuse me, of Israel fell slain. Now look at verse 17. Don't, don't miss this. Now this is the, the main point. This is the commentator, the writer, the author giving us a crucial fact. It says here, thus the sons of Israel, verse 18, were subdued at that time and the sons of Judah conquered. Why? Because they trusted. They trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. That's what the author, the inspired author, is wanting us to see, to realize, and imitate in this chapter today. To trust in our greatest time of need. He continues to go on to give us more of the results of what happens to the man who doesn't trust in the Lord, Jeroboam, and then the man who does trust, Abijah. We see that Abijah pursued Jeroboam and captured from him several cities, Bethel with its villages, Jeshana with its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Here's Jeroboam. He did not again recover strength in the days of Abijah. This is what happens when we do not trust in the Lord, and so the Lord struck him and he died. Verse 21, but here's what happens when we do trust in the Lord is uh, but Abijah became powerful and took 14 wives to himself and became the father of 22 sons and 16 daughters, basically saying, this man prospered, the Lord blessed him. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his words are written in the treaties of the prophet Iddo. So we have on one hand a man who did not trust in the Lord. What was his result? He collapsed and he fell. And on the other hand, we have a man who trusted in the Lord with the result he rose and stood upright as Psalm 20, verse 6 through 8 says, And I know that the Lord will save his anointed. He will save him with the uh, strength of, excuse me, got to look at that. Don't quote it off memory. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from the holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So what's our take-home assignment today? I'm giving you assignments. I was a teacher, so I'm giving you homework today. First is this, endeavor, endeavor to know more and more the faithful God, right? You can't put your trust in God if you don't know God. Daniel eleven thirty two. and the people who know their God will stand strong and will take action. 
right? Endeavor to know God in the scripture, know his word, know his promises, know him. And as we do, we will be strengthened to trust him. And lastly, commit. Commit yourself today to placing your wholehearted trust in the faithful God. So, we have one king, two vastly different snapshots, but in the end, the same faithful and trustworthy God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for you are trustworthy, Lord. You are not man that you would change your mind, not the son of man that you would lie, Lord, but rather you are God, the faithful God. All that you have said, you will bring about. All that you have declared, you will bring it to fruition. And so, Lord, we have a great God who is worthy of our trust, a faithful God, a trustworthy God. I pray that we would trust in him today. As Jeremiah says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Even when the heat comes, his leaves will not perish. His fruit will remain. Oh God, we want to trust in you. Even when the heat, the distressing moments of life come our way. When we are in crises, just like Abijah. And every day, Lord, even when we are not, we want to put our trust in you. Lord, lastly, I pray if there's anyone in here that has not put their trust in Christ, the first place they must put their trust is in him. He is a mighty savior. Where they cast away everything else, that they would come to him with empty hands, that Lord, there is nothing else we can put our trust in but in him. And so I pray that they would do that today, that you would have glory in their repentance and their salvation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.